Cap Impact Podcast receives funding from the Solano County Water Agency. At the Solano County Water Agency, we do far more than supply 400,000 residents with clean and reliable water. We're a regional leader coordinating and supporting programs for responsible groundwater, flood, and regional water management. Learn more at www.scwa2.com. I'm John Wainwright, and this is the Cap Impact Podcast, a podcast by the Capital Center for Law and Policy at University of the Pacific McGeorge School of Law in Sacramento, California. Today, we are talking about the impact of Justice Anthony Kennedy's retirement and the potential confirmation of SCOTUS nominee Brett Kavanaugh. We'll be talking about that with Maggie Crow, who is General Counsel at Planned Parenthood of California. Maggie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. And then after that, we're going to switch over to talking about SB 320 here that just moved through the California legislature. And we'll be talking about that with Professor Edelina Coe here from McGeorge School Law. Edelina, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Maggie, obviously, um, Anthony Kennedy officially retired from the Supreme Court about a month ago at the end of July. From where you're sitting, what is the impact of Justice Kennedy's retirement from the court? Justice Kennedy's retirement from the court has a huge impact. It really can't be overstated. Justice Kennedy's legacy is an important one. His his connection here to Sacramento and McGeorge School of Law is an important one. But beyond that, his legacy on the court, he was a key swing vote on many issues ranging from voting rights to gay rights. In fact, he authored key opinions there in Romer v. Evans, Lawrence v. Texas, U.S. versus Windsor, and of course, Oberfell versus Hodges. You know, he, he had a number of, of key votes on reproductive health-related decisions. He wasn't always on Planned Parenthood's side, but he you know was a crucial key vote in the, the recent case of Whole Women's Health versus Helderstadt. That was a case involving a Texas law that the Supreme Court found to be an undue burden on women accessing abortion. So, you know, he was classified, he I think fairly classified as a moderate justice who called the cases as he saw them. And those calls were very significant on crucial issues. And you, you look a little bit at his history. He was the justice that was nominated and confirmed to replace Justice Powell, who was another kind of swing moderate vote on the court. And that confirmation hearing actually originated with Robert Bork being the nominee. Uh, that's that is who the far right wanted. He was, you know, a conservative and originalist. And because of a you know major uproar in the Senate during the confirmation process, the nomination was withdrawn and he was replaced by Justice Kennedy. And that is how we got to where we at are at now. And, you know, in, in some sense, history here is repeating itself. And I want to circle back a little bit. I, you mentioned Oberfell and a couple of the other cases. He always did seem to be a little bit of a bulwark against the wing of the court that really, I think, had, if they had the opportunity, they would have rolled back a lot of the protections from Roe v. Wade. It certainly looks that way. And that is why, from, from our standpoint, the potential nomination of Justice Kavanaugh or of Judge Kavanaugh as a justice would be so dangerous and so damaging because these issues were close calls. As we got further and further, some of these cases were won by very narrow margins. These were 5-4 decisions, or in the the Helverset case um, there, that there were four, there were only eight justices at, at that point. But these were close decisions, and Justice Kennedy was a key swing vote. So I think part of that impact that we'll get into here is losing that swing voter. Should Brett Kavanaugh be confirmed to Supreme Court. What are some of the other impacts that you think he might have on the court in terms of, I mean, we can start with in terms of Roe v. Wade and the other case law around that or 
just kind of more broadly? Certainly. I mean, Roe v. Wade wasn't created in a vacuum. It's part of a, a larger framework of the constitutional right to privacy. That right encompasses the right, obviously, to access reproductive health care, but also the right to birth control for everyone. That came out of first Griswold versus Connecticut and even started in cases before that. And so, you know, when, when you look at this, it, it comes to the fundamental question of what will the Supreme Court do to protect an individual, a woman, a man, a transgender individual, what will the Supreme Court do to ensure that they have the right to privacy, that they have the right to access health care, that they have the right to personal liberty, that they have a right to go to a doctor and get the service that they want, that they are free from somebody else's religious views. You know, when we look at some of the cases that are cropping up, you know, where private companies are denying essentially healthcare rights that they don't agree with, that anybody would be bound by the healthcare decisions, the religious decisions of their employers. And, and that's where we're going. And the Supreme Court is the last stop. It is the last place in place where an individual can go for justice. And what's in jeopardy now is, is whether that is whether the doors of justice will be open to the individuals that need it most. And we're recording this on day two of Kavanaugh's judiciary hearings. Were there any highlights or anything that you gleaned from the hearings yesterday that seemed to indicate where he might land on cases that would come before the court on some of these issues? Um, certainly. And, you know, I, he's, he's authored more than 300 opinions. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot that we can glean from what he's already said, what he's already done. But a couple points to make at the outset. It is shocking to me that 90 of his records from a crucial time when he was in the White House, that those records haven't been reviewed by the Senate, haven't been seen by the public, uh, that we would even consider nominating someone to a lifetime appointment on the most significant court in our entire country without fully vetting their record. You know, regardless of their substantive positions, you know, that, I mean, full stop on that alone. I mean, that is deeply, deeply troubling that the president used his executive privilege essentially to block access to records, then that the senators were given 400,000 plus pages of records that were revealed the day before the hearing. So the senators that are trusted with vetting and confirming this nominee are given less than 24 hours to review 400,000 pages of documents. You know, that's deeply troubling. So the process in and of itself feels remarkably unjust when we're talking about confirming a justice. That aside, you know, another comment, I mean, actions speak louder than words. And we've heard a lot of words about, you know, all the work this man's done in the community, what kind of dad he is. And you know, th- that is all comforting and wonderful to hear. But what is seared in my memory right now as I, as I answer this question is this, this picture, this image of him refusing to shake the hand of a man whose daughter was gunned down at Parkland a few months ago that he wouldn't shake Fred Guttenberg's hand, Fred the dad of Jamie, that he wouldn't shake his hand, that he turned away instead of shaking his hand. And that, you know, that image is in newspapers and all over the all over the internet now. And then just a couple hours later, Kavanaugh gives this this speech, this great speech about how much he values his own daughters, his own family. And that was really chilling. And I think that speaks that speaks and it undermines what kind of person this person is. Now he's he's vowed to uphold precedent. You know he's he's talked about Roe v. Wade as precedent, and that there's layers of precedent on top of that. You know, precedent is somewhat of a political football because 
the facts of each case are different, and he's recognized that. And, you know, you can extend precedent until you find some way to distinguish the precedent from the case at hand. And, I, you know, I'm sure he'll he'll be able to do that. So we'll switch out of the prediction game a little bit and move from Supreme Court specifically to just some of the other changes that have been going on at the federal level in regards to health policy. What have been some of the biggest changes that have come out of the current Congress and administration as it relates to health? I mean, interestingly, today, the California Attorney General's Office and the Texas Attorney General's Office are in court, in federal court, in Texas over the ACA and whether or not the ACA will continue to be the law of the land. Trump's major objective with Congress was to overturn the ACA, uh, was essentially to, to scrap Obamacare. He wasn't successful in doing that. He didn't get the votes, failed to do that. We were able to withstand that. But if the ACA is either overturned by the courts or derailed by Congress, you know, that would cause a major change to healthcare for everyone, including California. California has more patients through the ACA than, than anywhere else. So literally millions of people right here in California would be affected by that if that were to be a, a policy change. The other one that I'll mention is Title 10. Right now, the federal government is considering a major rule change to Title 10. They proposed a rule, opened up a comment period, Planned Parenthood you know, submitted comments along with hundreds of thousands of other concerned doctors, nurses, citizens, everybody essentially, you know, had the chance to submit comments. And what will come out of all of that is a final rule on who's eligible for Title X. Title X is the program. Traditionally, uh, Title X has been used for birth control funding, STD testing, education, a a variety of health-related needs. Those are a lot of services that Planned Parenthood already provides, too. Yes, Planned Parenthood provides those services, and Title X has provided the funding for Planned Parenthood to do so. These rules are a huge deviation from from what's been allowed before. Significantly, there is a gag rule. So no health center that receives funding from Title X can discuss abortion or refer abortion for a patient. So this, this would take Planned Parenthood and many other health centers out of the game for receiving that funding. There's also a physical separation rule. So no center that provides abortion could receive any Title X funding. So that's a, that would be a significant departure, um, you know, from even how Bush and Reagan, who who really crafted Title X, viewed Title X. It it would be a significant change, and it would really gut Title X as we know it. So if the federal government is successful in derailing the ACA um, or changing the Title X funding structure, those would be significant health decisions that would impact all of us. Um, but to some degree, though, I know California always, especially on issues like this, tends to go well above and beyond where the federal government sets the bar. So, I mean, is there some kind of like a mitigation here that we could expect by being in California? Would it kind of, are we looking at potentially lessened impacts of these federal changes or are major changes to say like Title X, I mean, would those be just as deeply felt here as in any other state? That's a great point. I mean, you know, California has has great leaders. I mean, our our champions, the United States Senate, Senator Feinstein and Senator Harris are doing a terrific job in this hearing and are doing everything they can to protect us at a federal level. Our leaders in the state legislature are you know, always looking for ways, for the most part, to advance reproductive health and access to health care. So we are very fortunate in California in that regard. But there is nothing to totally insulate us from bad Supreme Court rulings 
or bad federal laws. California is not an island, and we at Planned Parenthood, our belief at our core, we believe that all people should have access to healthcare, that it shouldn't matter what your zip code is, what language you speak, you know, who you are, that you should have access to healthcare, and that by visiting a doctor, you shouldn't you know, spend the rest of your life in crippling financial debt. Um, you know, our, our focus is reproductive health care, and you know, we're proud of the patients we serve and the services we offer. And you know, to have to defend that to this administration has been, has been really beyond troubling. And that's actually kind of where I want to go next, which is where does Planned Parenthood, specifically Planned Parenthood of California, kind of fit into these different fights at the federal level? Title 10 is just kind of the one that keeps going around because that one almost seems the most squarely aimed at groups like Planned Parenthood in terms of like targeting, you know, one organization that provides a set service and tries to find a way to eliminate their ability to do that. Um, yeah, I mean, Planned Parenthood California, you know, we were a leader in this fight. We're at the forefront of this fight. We're also partners to a number of other coalitions and groups who are part of this fight. And it all comes down to you know, what I said as our core value that we believe that all women should have access to a doctor. And, you know, we don't find that so controversial, but because other folks do, we're, we're willing to, to fight because that's what we have to do. I mean, granted, I, we are in California, so there's kind of this difference in that you have people that might actually listen to what Planned Parenthood has to say and not kind of have this instinctive reaction to against Planned Parenthood here, especially when you see it almost like the legislature almost takes the opposite approach of Congress when it comes to these types of issues in California. I mean, how do, what does Planned Parenthood do to kind of play on the, the state level issues here in California? I think it's giving California an opportunity to be innovative, um, you know, whether we're kind of a sanctuary state for women's health, even though, you know, states all around us might be cropping up with laws to block access to abortion here in California. You know, we're attempting to expand medical abortion and, you know, further ensure women's access. So that creates a nice kind of contrast point between federal government and the state legislature with SB 320. So Professor Cohen, I know we talked about this much earlier in the legislative session, and now that your session's over, what does this finalized version of SB 320 do? Well, SB 320 really seeks to improve college women's access to medication abortion, which is sometimes referred to as RU-40. For those of you who are not familiar, medication abortion is an alternative to surgical abortion. The regimen is safe, it's effective, and it involves two drugs that were approved by the FDA almost 20 years ago. Um, if signed into law, the bill would require California's public universities to offer medication abortion at their student health centers. According to recent research done by the University of California at San Francisco, women attending college universities commonly need access to abortion care, but they're forced to seek this health care off campus. And having to go off campus can then result in them encountering a variety of access barriers due to their lower incomes, limited mobility, and their complex schedules. So if SB 320 is enacted and receives adequate private funding, the new law would help eliminate these barriers and provide college women with increased access to medication abortion they so choose it. Okay, so you said that this now requires UCs to provide this. Is that going to then turn into an increase in costs for students now that this is a new service that the state's requiring UC to provide? No, it's privately funded, and actually the law makes clear that, that uh, student fees and general fund appropriations aren't for this funding of the bill. 
So, have any other states tried passing a law similar to this one? Uh, not that I'm aware of, but California would certainly be the first state with this type of law. Um, that being said, California universities aren't the first universities to provide medication abortion on campus. A study by the American College Health Association found that other colleges are providing it. Uh, the University of Illinois at Chicago, for example, has provided medication abortion since 2006 and has done so safely and successfully. And kind of talk about it being, and I think you mentioned it too, that it's been waiting for it to be signed in law. So it did make it out of the legislature this year. Yes, in January it passed the Senate, and just this past August the Assembly passed it. I mean, should this actually get signed into law by Governor Brown? What is, What do you think is the significance of this becoming law in California? Well, on the one hand, California passing a bill like SB 320 is significant in light of the Trump administration and the Republican Congress's relentless assault on women's reproductive rights and access to abortion care. Um, it's another way that California is leading the resistance against the tide to turn back the clock on these rights and other civil rights and civil liberties. You know, on the other hand, um, California has always been rather exceptional in its protection of women's reproductive rights and access to abortion care. So, for example, in California, the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Roe v. Wade protects this right, but the California Constitution also recognizes this right and its right to privacy. Um, the right is also protected in California by state statute. California courts have also been exceptional in their protection of their abortion right and have struck down restrictions that are commonly seen and upheld in other states. So in this regard, SB 320 is very much in line with California's leadership and progressive approach in this area, irrespective of um, or in spite of what's going on at the federal level. You know, as important as what the Supreme Court ultimately decides on these cases is how access works in practice. And this bill is a great example of how access can work in practice. Before Roe v. Wade, uh, the estimate was that a million women died having abortions. Right now, even though everyone has, women have the right to an abortion, technically, a lot of women still can't access abortion. There's five states where there's only one clinic that actually does abortions. In Texas, the uh, mortality rate for, for pregnant women is as high as in some undeveloped countries. So we are still dealing with this crisis of access and whether on paper it says you have a right to an abortion or not, if there isn't funding, if there isn't access, if there aren't clinics, if there isn't a Planned Parenthood, you know, within driving or walking or busing distance, you know, the, that right really loses its meaning. So what's important about uh, SB 320 and the conversation around that is it's really a conversation around access. Thank you so much for Thank you for joining us today, Maggie. Thank you also, uh, Professor Cohen. And if you enjoyed today's show, please remember to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast from. You can also follow Cap Impact Podcast and our blog, Cap Impact, on Facebook and Twitter. Both of those are at Cap Impact CA. Thanks for listening to today's show. Talk to you again next week.